This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome, friend, to our weekly garden party. We hope you brought along your questions because it's time to dish the dirt. On The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Good morning. Welcome to The Garden Show. Here I am uh, in my home office in Prince Edward County, <clears throat> looking out the window. And for one of it's a rare day. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's a rare day because... The sky is not absolutely crystal blue. We have had so much sun this summer. It's just been an amazing year for all the sun-loving annuals and perennials and vegetables. But today we've got some clouds, so I'm very excited. I'm hoping we really will get some rain. Uh, We did, I'm happy to say, did get uh, about two centimeters of rain a few days ago, and that was Super bonus, because um, as for regular listeners of the show, you'll know it's been dry at my place. We've had a, a extensive lack of rain, and we have crispy lawns, and our well went dry. So now we've had two. It only went dry once. <clears throat> but we've had, and of course, we brought in the water truck and had the, the big tanker fill up the well. And then uh, we did another fill up this past week because we are watching the well, and we realized that even though we're being so, so careful and using so little water, but you know, you have to use some water, uh, it's still going down. It's still going down about six inches a day. Now I am having to water the garden plants and trees, things that I planted last fall. I mean, this is really just the first year for so much, so, for all of my garden plants. So I, I am TLCing them a fair amount, and uh, that's, you know, the water does glue it on that. So anyway, water comes in, water goes out. Here's, here's a cute quote I just, Somebody just sent me, uh, we don't talk about trees getting older, we say they're growing. So let's use that same term for ourselves. We're not getting older, we're just growing. So that's pretty cute. I will give out the numbers quickly before we go off to our first break, but I will let you know we're having some technical issues back at the station. So I'm not positive if we can actually get anybody on the phone, but I'm going to answer some email. And if you want to call, you, you will be on hold, and hopefully we will be able to get you on air. Local call number, as you know, is 416 360 And if you're outside the local calling area, it's 866 Seven four zero four seven forty. Carlos is in charge there. He's doing his best to try to hold it all together. Feels a bit like duct tape and, and bailing wire at this point, but we're having we're going to have a good day. You know, we're talking gardening. We have lots to talk about, so we'll be back in a minute to answer some of your email. Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Yes, indeed. Gardening all year round. And we've still got lots of gardening to do this fall. Think about it. We're, you know, so far away from being able to really put our tools away. I I have had a number of questions about things like crabgrass. This has also been a great year for crabgrass. So remember, now is the time. If you can pull crabgrass, do so. It's very shallow-rooted. It grows in little clumps. At this time of year, it's 
this, the grass stems are kind of a purple color right down uh, at the um, surface of the soil. And uh, there's little clumps, and they're starting to flower. And the sneaky thing about crabgrass is that when it flowers, it, those, the, we call the, the grass stems or leaves um, prostrate. They are lying right on the ground, and of course, the flower stems are doing the exact same thing. So all the mowing in the world is never going to get those flower heads cut off. You need to pull the crabgrass if you can. Now, um, <clears throat> reason why is because little plants will die. Those are annual plants. Those mother plants will die, but before they die in the winter, they're going to pop out thousands and thousands of seeds, which are going to grow next spring. So best if you can to pull crabgrass now. But remember, we had a call last week from, uh, it was on the subject of vinegar. Who was that? Oh, yes, Aiden gave us, or sorry, Barb gave us a call from Aiden, and she was wondering about vinegar as a herbicide. So I did a little bit of quick research, and I realized there's an awful lot of vinegars out there uh, of different, like, remember what, what is vinegar? A vinegar is acetic acid. So a different uh, concentration of acetic acid is available for different purposes. For our French fries, it's, I think, about a 3 or 4% solution of a concentration, I should say, of acetic acid that we put on and enjoy for cleaning. <clears throat> You'll see a 10% acetic acid type um, uh, availability. But then I even saw on the web 75% acetic acid. Now that is one uh, potentially caustic or, or um, could really burn things. However, the bottom line is vinegar kills plants. So going back to the crabgrass, if you have patches of crabgrass and you're just overwhelmed and think, I have no idea how I can pull these out, it's just not possible, consider spraying vinegar on the crabgrass. That, it will work. Um, there's a, a UBC, the University of British Columbia Botanical Garden has a forum that I just happened to fall into, and somebody was asking about vinegar and does it work? Well, here is the bottom line through this forum. There's a good answer. It just says, if you want a green solution to weeds that actually work, you, uh, this person who's writing says, I can confirm that white pickling vinegar. So pickling vinegar is a 7% acetic acid. Uh, solution. Now, this is quite an old post. Since then, cleaning vinegars have become quite trendy, and they're usually about 10%. makes an amazing plant killer, and it does. I can confirm that as well. I've definitely used vinegar in my interlocking, in you know, little weeds coming up in the interlocking stones and bricks. It kills quite effectively. Now, big tap-rooted old dandelions, not going to kill that overnight with one spray, but yes, indeed, you can spray more than once. Remember, Vinegar kills everything. So if you're going to use uh, vinegar as a killer, then consider that you're very, very careful to not spray vinegar on any of your garden plants. That's the, that's the real bottom line. Your garden plants will also you know, suffer extreme um, damage if they are sprayed with vinegar. Of course, if there is rain in the forecast, wait. Don't spray vinegar just before rain. Try and uh, wait till after the rain. And there's kind of a cute tip here that somebody had this massive amount of weeds, and, and she says, I'm going to hack a Swiffer wet jet mop so I can refill it with vinegar and use its built-in battery-powered sprayer to do large areas conveniently. Uh, and this is a person with gravel trails in the back of the property and wants to keep the gravel trails vegetation-free. So the spray bottle does get tiresome, so I'm going to use a battery-powered Swiffer mop. I thought that was pretty funny. It's a good idea, you know? Be creative. 
I am back at school. My voice might sound a bit tired today. I was teaching all day yesterday, starting at 8 o'clock in the morning. So um, the uh, lectured from 8 o'clock in the morning till 11 a.m. via virtual, so over the, over the computer. And then I was on campus with my first-year students for the first day, first lab, yesterday afternoon. And um, it's going to be a fun semester. You know, I do, I do enjoy teaching and, and the students and, and all the kind of stories they bring with them into the classroom. So we'll, uh, we'll be having some fun there. Uh, let's take a moment here and have one more quick break. And uh, we'll come back and I'll see if I've got some, some, good, some good email to share with you. Stay tuned. Fur and feathers and bugs of all size. There's more going on in the garden than you realize. Should small creatures become a big problem, then you've got The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Exclusively on Zoomer Radio. All right. So you'll notice I'm not really pushing the phone numbers because at this point we are having some technical issues in the studio. So we are not confident that we can actually hook phone calls and me together, because remember, I'm out in my home office in Prince Edward County. So you're going to listen to me. I'm going to ramble on about all kinds of things that I have found interesting this week. Here's one. Anybody having fruit flies flying around your kitchen? Because it is the time of year where we're bringing in apples and, well, in our house, we've got, feels like bushels of tomatoes. And it's just a lot of fruit and vegetables. And windows are open, of course. The weather's beautiful. And Flies are coming in and out, but fruit flies, you get one and then you've got a hundred, it seems. So uh, we were battle- doing the fruit fly battle, and then I remembered a trap that is so simple and it works so well. I put it together in mere seconds, and, and actually probably the simplest trap is just a little bowl, like a little custard dish. You don't need much, you know, half an inch of preferably any kind of vinegar, but a smelly vinegar, like a cider vinegar is the best. A drop of soap, just dish soap on top of that vinegar don't stir it up or anything just let it sit out on your counter the vinegars sorry the flies are very attracted to the vinegar and of course the soap acts as a um it changes the the surface tension of the liquid so that they can't once they step down i'm sorry settle their little wings and their little feet down onto the liquid because they're so interested in that vinegar they pop right through because of the surface tension change caused by the, the soap and they can't get out. Um, I, I didn't do that trap. The trap I did was just simple vinegar, little jar, uh, plastic wrap over the top, uh, elastic band around the top of the jar, and I poke a bunch of little holes into the plastic wrap. No soap, just straight vinegar. And the fruit flies uh, will, will be quite interested. They'll pop down through the holes in the plastic wrap, and then they can't get out, so they eventually drown inside the jar. And then you clean it out and start again. Or when I, I discovered by a, a total fluke, if you have an empty wine bottle sitting on your counter because you've been too lazy to take that wine bottle out to the, the garage or the shed, that empty wine bottle is a fruit fly trap. So <laughs> the fruit flies will fly down into the bottle because they're quite attracted to the residue of wine. And the narrow neck of the bottle acts as a very interesting way to not let them out. So, uh, yeah, you can just... Super simple. Just leave out, just leave out some empty wine bottles, and you too can be a fruit fly farmer if you wish to be. Um, the uh, something to put on your calendars for next week is I will be in studio next week, and I will have with me a special guest. Her name is Lori DeMonte. She runs a company, a maintenance, well, it's a design, garden design 
garden install and garden maintenance company called Who Does Your Garden? Question mark. So Who Does Your Garden? She, she named her company Who Does Your Garden because she felt that that really summed up what she does. She does a beautiful job, and the first thing any passerby or visitor will say when they see one of the gardens that Lori has, has tended or designed, and they'll say, wow, who does your garden? So that's the name of her company, and uh, she'll be joining us next week. She's going to tell us a little bit about how she got into this business, this crazy horticultural business, which is something that I know my students are always kind of interested in, and, and she'll be here also just to share some of her tips and some of the things she's learned out on, out in people's gardens and um, some of the things she's seeing, you know, good, good things and not so good things that are being done. Some of the, um, she does both commercial uh, and uh, residential garden design and maintenance. So, um, yeah, I think Lori's going to bring some interesting, uh, an interesting voice to the show for next week. So put, like I say, put that on your calendar. Here's one more thing from last week. Remember Ken called from Oakville. And he was trying to figure out how to save Datura seeds, so angels' trumpet seeds. And he was just having challenges with being able to save those seeds. Datura seeds tend to um, kind of explode out of the pods. And he was really wanting to keep those uh, those seeds in order to grow for next year. And I did get uh, an email from Annette in North Tonawanda, New York, who heard Ken's question, and she said she always just keeps her dutcher going from cuttings. So that was a good point. I hadn't sort of thought of that. I was so concentrating on the seed question. <clears throat> I neglected to mention to Ken that you can always easily take those tip cuttings from the plants you love. And I think that is a good tip for everybody right now. If you've got hibiscus, you've got oleander, you've got mandevilla, you have um, tropical plants that are large, they're beautiful, you've loved them all summer, but you just cannot bring them inside. You don't have room or you don't have enough light inside to keep these plants alive in the big form. Consider cuttings right now. It's a, it's a great backup plan, even if you plan to do both. Maybe, maybe you do have the, the an ability to bring them in, but you're not positive they'll survive the winter. Well, right now, and, and, and sooner is better than later, take those tip cuttings. So four to six inch uh, cuttings off the tips of the plants. If there's flowers there, remove flowers, remove lower leaves, and where the leaves have been removed, you've got little bumps on the stems. What bumps are called nodes. Get those nodes underwater or into a moist perlite or a moist peat moss and uh, into a not too hot, not too sunny location, preferably actually kind of a cooler location, bright but not direct sunlight, and uh, roots will grow fairly quickly from cuttings, uh, and depending on the plant, water is very, very simple, but, uh, but you know, geranium, sometimes a lot of people like to keep their geraniums, so again, if you can't keep the big plant, consider cuttings now, and then you will be ready to go to really propagate them next spring. So that's just a thought for um, for those of you who are uh, wanting to propagate plants, and, and a lot of us do. We have favorite plants. We don't want to see them disappear, and they're expensive, right, to, to keep buying. Um, also, coming up this week, I've told you a little bit about the documentary Healing Gardens. So Healing Gardens is uh, a 10-episode documentary being produced by the mothership there at Zoomer Media, uh, so it's Zoomer Media is um, 
heading up the production of Healing Gardens. And eventually, once we get all the episodes made and uh, edited and ready to, to show you, they will be uh, shown on Vision Television. And I will tell you, of course, when that's happening. But uh, for now, we're still in production, and we're off to the Royal Botanical Gardens this week to do one more episode. We're, we're getting there. We're up to episode nine, as far as I know. And um, <laughs> But who's counting? So we will be uh, discovering some of the lovely gardens of, of the Royal Botanical Gardens. And and it's neat, you know, I, I used to haunt that RBG and go there often just because it's such a lovely, lovely, massive garden uh, or series of gardens. But they have spent quite a bit of money on some redesigns. The Rose Garden is phenomenal. I was there for the grand opening of the Rose Garden uh, about three or four years ago. And the Hendry Park Garden down, um, I think it's, I think it's it, it, Hendry, down the, yes, the Hendry Rock Garden. Again, massive renovation of that one. I was there for that opening, too, because that is amazing. But one I haven't seen and I'm looking forward to is they have installed a healing garden. And it's got hundreds and hundreds of plants from all over the world. And uh, they, they always had a sort of a medicinal garden, which was a collection of plants that had traditionally been used for medicinal purposes. But now they've really uh, reorganized that into um, a healing garden. So that is going to be fun to see. And to obviously talk to the people there, who, the volunteers, the staff at the Royal Botanical Gardens, and, and get some of their feedback on, on how these gardens affect visitors, how uh, they feel as staff working in these gardens, and, and you know, some of the medicinal uses and, and some of the, the stories, the worldwide stories of where these plants come from and, and, and how they've been used. Uh, that's exactly what I was talking to my students about yesterday was going way back to the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I mean, gardens have been around for a very long time. And of course, they were, have always been used for medicine. They've been used for food. They've been used for clothing. They've been used for our, um, for our structures, for our homes. So, and they still are. So, uh, you know, everything starts with plants. Everything starts with plants, just so you know. There, you wouldn't have a, a leather belt made from a cowhide if you didn't have plants for that cow to eat, to grow up the cow to become your belt. The, uh, everything starts with plants. It's, um, it's a magical thing, but plants are just that magical. <clears throat> right oh, here's uh, let's do a little bit of email because, like I said, it's just at this point still impossible for me to able be able to get you online. <clears throat> Excuse me while I clear my throat. Yes, my voice is a little tired. I can hear it. But uh, here's a, <clears throat> here's an email from Connie Connie Brown, and she now this is a fairly old email. I'm afraid to say I haven't read it in quite a while. Uh, Connie says she does listen to the show faithfully. Needs some advice. How do I shape and prune this hydrangea bush? So there is a photograph of this hydrangea, and it's become overpowering. She'd like to train it to grow into a nice shape. And uh, she also comments and that she had heard me referring to one of the gardens that we visited, again, as part of the Healing Gardens episodes, uh, the Conifer Garden near Hamilton. It, and it is called Whistling Gardens. So whistle, like, so Whistling Gardens uh, is where we were. And it is near Hamilton. It's actually nearer to Brantford. Yes, Brantford than Hamilton. Um, and it is a wonderful garden. If you are looking for uh, an outing this weekend, 
they are open and they are wonderful, lovely, lovely people. I, I haven't looked to see what's special going on, but they have events all the time. So there may be something fun going on at Whistling Gardens this weekend. Check them out. And um, going back to, yes, Stephen Biggs, the author of the book, The Fig Pig. Yes, indeed. Uh, that Stephen Biggs, Stephen with a V, not a PH, and Biggs with two Gs is a fig guy. So if you're interested in learning more about figs, because, and Stephen was on the show not that long ago and brought me some figs. Uh, yes, he's, he knows a lot about figs. You can always contact Stephen very simply through his website, which is Food Garden Life. That's one word, foodgardenlife.com. Remember, his daughter Emma is the tomato grower, and you can contact her through emmabigs.ca. She's got a great blog. She tells great stories, and she is one busy young lady, 16 years old, full-time student, and full-time tomato grower. So she's uh, somebody to be very, very uh, impressed with how hard she works and how engaged she is. But sorry, Connie, going back to your your hydrangea, it looks to me like the hydrangea you're growing might be one called hydrangea and the cultivars phantom. They have absolutely huge blooms, and this sort of scraggly-looking hydrangea you're growing is something with huge blooms. So here's what you're going to do. Uh, if you can just leave it alone for now and for the winter, you know, it's going to look like what it looks like, but the blooms I find quite ornamental throughout the winter. But come spring, it, that's when you get out your pruners. On a nice dry day, you are going to do a pretty hefty pruning on this plant. So go back. Like you're going to have to look at where all those various branches are coming from. And if you want it to be a shrub, remember that's multiple stems coming out of the ground. If you want it to be a tree, you're going to train it to a one single stem coming out of the ground with multiple stems growing above the single stem so that it's, you know, the shape of a lollipop, if you will. But it is a spring pruning. It's before the leaves emerge. So depending on the weather, it might be April, it might be May, it's a nice dry day, and uh, you, the buds are starting to, to show, so you can see the little green buds on the, the branches of the, the hydrangea. Now you start cutting back to an outward-facing bud. Well, in this case, actually, these hydrangeas don't have outward-facing buds per se because the buds are opposite on the stems. So you will... You will actually cut down to pairs of buds that are going to grow sideways, not inwards. You want to avoid any growth to the inside of the plant. So you might even ultimately be doing just that. So you've only got single uh, branches growing outwards. But either way, remove any of that inward growing growth. And don't be afraid to prune the whole thing down. You know, it is, I used to have a limelight hydrangea at my last house, and it wanted to be eight feet tall and eight feet wide. And I was fighting with it because I wanted it to be five feet tall and five feet wide. And every spring, I'd cut it down to about, you know, three and a half, four feet. But every year, it went to its eight feet. It was like, I don't care what you want. I'm going for eight feet. So these, some of these hydrangeas get very, very large, particularly if they're in lots of sun. Like, these are the, the not the round mop head hydrangeas. These are more the, the conical flowering hydrangeas. So they... Uh, um, will grow and give us real great show uh, in terms of their flowering, but they do need lots of sun and, and space to grow because some of them do get large. Uh, I, I liked my limelight so much, I grew, I've got another one planted here in my new garden here in the county. Uh, another email from Horace Watson, and Horace <clears throat> excuse me, says, 
Hi, Charlie. I'm a regular listener of your show every Saturday when possible and find it super informative. Uh, this is from early August, so hopefully Horace is listening today. Please help me with my red delicious apple tree, which I have, which I have now for a very long time. When I prune it after reaping the fruits, what I notice of late is it becomes very bushy and provides no fruits whatsoever the following year. What am I doing wrong? Have a good day and await your response. So Horace, um, number one, we don't prune our apple trees after we uh, harvest the fruit. So we harvest our apples in late summer and fall. We, we prune our apple trees in late winter or very early spring. So you look for, again, a dry day. Uh, it could be February. It could be March. So it's very much late winter, early spring. The plant is dormant. There's no growth on it whatsoever. You can very, very easily, with any of your fruit trees, study the structure of the tree and do a certain amount of standing back and looking at it and and deciding what needs to be removed. With a red delicious apple, there are different ways to prune. There's, you will probably, there's some very good books written on the subject. There's some excellent YouTube videos on pruning uh, fruit trees in general, but apple trees specifically. Um, red delicious, we typically will prune to a central leader. That means there's a central terminal um, branch that grows up to the sky, and that is your central leader. Most deciduous trees, that's the, the, the form that we choose, and we encourage that form with our pruning. Fruit is born on spurs. What are spurs? Those are those little stubby branches that grow only about a quarter of an inch a year. So what you're getting is those what we call water spouts. Uh, by that late summer pruning that you're doing, Horace, you're encouraging the exact wrong kind of growth. So avoid that late summer pruning. Prune out all those water spouts in the spring. And, uh, of course, you want to leave those little spurs. And the spurs are a very different kind of growth. They're very, very dense, little short branches, very, very stubby. And it's from those branches that you'll get flowers. So watch, of course, enjoy your flowers while they're happening. Watch the pollination happen. See the little tiny, tiny apples starting to form. Once you see those little tiny apples, you could have as many as three or four apples where the flower clusters were, and then you need to do some thinning of your fruit. Best, the best, believe it or not, is take it down to one apple per flower cluster. Um, that way you will get your best, biggest, fruit, you know, juiciest apples and your least amount of competition and your least amount of disease because you'll have better air circulation and sun penetration when you have one apple per flower cluster. Okay, Horace, I hope that helps. And uh, we uh, will have to take a short break, but we will be right back. I'll be right here. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> you stay tuned and, and stay tuned for some more email or maybe, just maybe, we can get to the phone. Daffodils and daisies, bluebells and begonias, forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds, magnolia, lavender and lupins, dahlias, delphiniums, stalks, fox, hollyhocks, tulips and sweet williams. You've picked the right place for everything floral. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Hello, and here we are. Yes, indeed, we're talking gardening. My goodness, it's a perfect day. It's not hot. It's not raining yet at my place. We are anticipating and expecting some rain, and I am very, very excited. 
So listen, if you have been hoping that you could call in and, and ask, speak with me and, and ask a personal direct question about your garden, I'm afraid that we are having some, some issues there at the studio and uh, just, you're going to have to listen to me ramble on and answer some email this week. We should, we'll be back up and running with lots of calls from you next week. And uh, so don't hang on hold or, or try and get online. It appears that the, the computer issues are rather large and will not be solved in the next 15 minutes. But I've got email. So thanks for all these great email. And, and so if for anybody who'd like to send email, my address is my first initial C, C for Charlie, C, dot Dobbin, D-O-B-B-I-N, so C dot Dobbin at mzmedia.com. So C dot Dobbin at mzmedia.com. Here is a note from Ingrid. And Ingrid says, hi guys, it's me again. Thank you for the tip for my beautiful hibiscus. No, it was not a giraffe, but that nasty beetle dining on the leaves since the cheesecloth, it has stopped. So that's good. So she had Japanese beetles, obviously, chewing on her hibiscus. Now she says, I'm battling with a new pest. In my jungle bedroom, I am finding a little white, almost like cotton, on the underside of a beautiful dracaena plant. Would you know what it could be? If anyone can figure it out, if you guys love your show, thank you, Ingrid. Right. You know what it is when it's little cotton, white little cotton um, blobs on any of your tropical plants, or, and you won't typically see this, this insect on anything but tropical plants, and that is mealybug. So mealy, M-E-A-L-Y, mealybug. If you want to look that up in one of your garden books or garden, one of your gar- favorite garden websites, but mealybug is a tough one to kill, like really tough. It's a very slow-moving moving insect. It doesn't fly. It has no wings. It can't get away from you. Uh, but it is very, very, it's evolved to protect itself. It produces that white, cottony-looking stuff, which is a waxy coating. It produces that waxy coating, covers its body with the waxy coating, and nothing can get through. You know, you can spray all you want, and it's very, very hard to kill them. There's no chemical that, you know, on, on the market that will kill them. However, when I was talking with my friend Sean James, <coughs> who you might recall has been on the show a number of times and is a very talented horticulturalist, he said, what, so what I've done with mealybug is I get out of Q-tips, I take 100% pure rubbing alcohol, dip my Q-tip into it, and then I go around and I dab and, and literally dab and kill each mealybug one at a time. The problem is, is that with a, with a plant that grows like Dracaena, you've got that rosette growth, right? You've got that central growing tip is way down in the center. And the other leaves, of course, are the older leaves. And the newest leaves are in the middle. And the little mealybugs can hide down in there and you can't get at them. But he said he has sprayed, and he said he sprays 100% rubbing alcohol on a plant that's infested with mealybugs. Leaves the rub, rubbing alcohol very briefly, maybe 10 minutes or so, and then has the plant in the bathtub, turns the shower on, and rub, <clears throat> or takes it outside and washes off the rubbing alcohol. So he said that's worth a try with the Dracaena because you can get that rubbing alcohol sprayed right down into that central, uh, central point where the those little, little pests will hide. So you're trying to, <laughs> 
uh, you're trying to get them where you can't see them, but the liquid alcohol, literally rubbing alcohol, will slither down and uh, and do a number down in there and, and hopefully kill them. But keep an eye on that plant and isolate it from all your other plants. Because even though mealybugs can't fly and move really slowly, they do transfer from plant to plant. And it's usually on us. We don't even realize that we are picking up a mealybug when we're stroking or touching one plant and we're moving to another plant and taking it with us. So don't do that. Isolate that plant and, you know, good garden hy- hygiene will prevent that, that insect from moving anywhere to any of your other plants. And if you're unable to kill that mealybug before winter sets in, you may have to give up the Dracaena and just leave it out. The, the mealybugs will die in the frost. They will not survive outside. Uh, which is why we typically don't see them outside. And they, they do love coming in on our plants when, when we bring them in. So be careful of that. All right. Um, my next email, you know what we'll do? This next email is kind of a long one. So why don't we take our final break and I'll be back to share with you an email from, oh, I don't, I'm going to have to look this up. This is, uh, Aina, Aina Eisen, I believe, and it's all about aster yellow virus in coneflower. So it's a it's kind of an interesting question. Janet Thompson started the question, but another uh, writer, another listener and writer also wanted to understand what's going on with their coneflower. So stay tuned. We'll be right back to break down the difference between aster yellow virus and uh, other sort of diseases of coneflowers that cause some very strange growth. Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Yeah, so if anybody has been growing and noticing some very odd, distorted growth in their coneflowers or echinacea, uh, which uh, Janet from St. Mary sent an email to ask me about. She wanted me to discuss the aster yellow virus that's hitting coneflowers. She said, I've read a lot about it, and the only option is to pull the affected plants. I have numerous varieties and numbers of coneflowers that I considered a collection, but now I'm pulling plants frequently. Do you know of any research that could save our beloved flowers? And I was like, oh, wow, that's quite a big, a big thing. Now, just in case... Janet is listening, or anybody who is listening wants to go to a great website where there's a real great breakdown between aster yellows and another uh, um, issue with uh, coneflowers. Just Google coneflower cleanup, and that's actually what it's called, coneflower cleanup, and that comes out of Ohio State University. And I'm actually going to Google it myself right now because it is one of those things that um, I'm just going to double check. It's a, I, yeah, coneflower cleanup. And so this uh, coneflower cleanup is, it's very, very good because it shows you aster yellow's symptoms. And of course, coneflowers or echinacea have long been, you know, grown and landscapes, they're naturalized, they're very, very attractive, they're wonderful pollinator support plants. And um, of course, we, we, many of us love them if we have a nice hot, sunny spot to grow them. Now, if 
we start noticing some really weird growth on the flowers, the question is, is it coneflower rosette mite, or is it a phytoplasma disease known as aster yellows? So aster yellows, as I mentioned, is a viral-like disease. It is caused by a phytoplasma. Insects that suck the sap of plants, especially the aster leafhopper, vector the disease. So that means that they carry the disease from plant to plant. Um, the disease affects over 300 species of plants, including plants such as asters, obviously, but also coneflowers, zinnias, marigolds, chrysanthemums, petunias, snapdragons, even edibles like lettuces and carrots and tomatoes can end up with this viral-like disease. Now, this is a disease is called aster yellows. It is primarily transmitted by leafhoppers. Leafhoppers hop from leaf to leaf, and they have little mouse parts that pierce the leaves, and they suck juice out of the leaves, but they leave behind some of this phytoplasma, which is this, the disease that uh, now becomes integrated into the plants where they have stuck their little mouse parts. And something to note, of course, that it often environmental impact is important when it comes to the spread of diseases. And as it turns out, aster yellows is worse in cool, wet summers. And we've been lucky because we had a real nice, hot, dry summer this year, which was not favorable for uh, the spread of either the leafhoppers or the phytoplasma that they might have been carrying. Um, but the question is... There's a somewhat similar appearing problem on coneflowers that's caused by a little tiny, tiny mite. So a mite is a form of spider. You will never see these mites with your naked eye. You'll need a magnifying glass. But experts are still sorting out this problem. Whether it's the mite, and it's actually even an unnamed mite because it's, there's so many mites out there, they can't keep on top of naming them all. At present, the common name used for the disorder caused by this mite is coneflower rosette mite. It may be a controllable problem through sanitation practices. So that's what, of course, our writer uh, Janet was talking about is the disposal, disposal of all affected flowers as they appear and all foliage in the fall. Unlike aster yellows, for which there's no cure other than to destroy infected plants. So that's the challenge trying to diagnose, what have I got here? Have I got aster yellows or do I have uh, this, this mite causing this weird distorted growth? So like I said, go to this coneflower cleanup. Uh, it's uh, under the Ohio State University site and uh, it's some wonderful photographs showing you the difference between mite damage and aster yellows damage. And bottom line, you may have to pull the plants if it appears that you have aster yellows but you may be able to um, avoid the mites in the future by removing all flowers as they emerge with these strange growths. And of course, not composting, not keeping them on the property. And then as well, in the fall, um, as the, you know, before winter, cutting the entire plant right down to ground level. And again, either burning or disposing of all that plant material off your property. So I hope that helps. It is a very sort of a it's an ongoing issue. There's no, no straight answers, and, and I hope that anybody who is suffering with distorted coneflowers does uh, get some, some more information and, and can figure out the right thing to do to avoid spreading that disease around 
you know, more so than it already is. But then on the other hand, keeping our, our, um, we love, absolutely love our, our echinacea, our cone flowers, as do the bees and the butterflies and, and the birds and all kinds of, of biodiversity is supported with cone flowers. So, you know, super favorite plants and, uh, we hate to pull them if we don't have to. So good luck with that, Janet. Let me know if, if I can help in any other way. That was Janet writing in from St. Mary's. So here's my email one more time. C, C for Charlie, dot Dobbin, D-O-B-B-I-N, at mzmedia.com. Feel free to send an email, and I will do my best to read email on upcoming shows. I don't have a lot of time to answer your emails directly, but I'll do my best to, you know, bring your, your questions to all of our listeners. And um, remember next week, Lori DeMonte joining us from Who Does Your Garden? Uh, nice to hear a different voice, uh, and particularly since you just listened to my my only voice for an entire hour. That must have been a bit exhausting for some of you. Uh, I hope uh, everything's going well in your gardens and that you're going to have a wonderful day. Get on that crabgrass. Don't let those seeds, seeds you know, form and, and start, you know, popping all over your, your lawns and gardens. You do not want thousands of crabgrass seeds all over the place. So get pulling crabgrass today and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. And I will see you all again next week. This has been an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.